Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, welcome to the 264th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Vicky Goggin and Noah Alexander. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Warren Kaplan, and today we have Yoko Okumura on the podcast, and this is a very fun talk. And I want to send a shout out to Kevin Berlandi, who introduced us to Yoko. Yoko is a director that has done a ton of things. She's done music videos and documentaries. And most recently, she has gone deep into the world of TV. She did this awesome horror anthology series called 50 States of Fright. She just directed an episode of Good Trouble. And she actually made this TikTok video (laughs) that went kind of viral about how she went from working at a sushi restaurant to directing an episode of TV to working at a sushi restaurant (laughs) to directing an episode of TV all in the course of a few months. And I just love that. I thought it was so inspiring. It's about how success isn't linear. And it's something that, you know, as artists, as creatives, as freelancers, as filmmakers, we need to remember because it is easy to get into that rut of like, well, I already did this project and it had this success so my With next, my resume? Yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah. My next project has to be bigger, and it, it does not have to be bigger. In fact, a lot of times when I, you do the big one and then a small one and a big one and a small one, those small ones teach you more about yourself as a filmmaker than the big ones. And, and to that end, I think Yoko has done a really great job of keeping herself creative and inspired and engaged. And we dig in deep about her history of making short films and self-starting in that way in addition to all of the other, you know, kind of bigger paying jobs that she's done over the years. So it's a really inspiring, exciting conversation. She's got a great point of view. We talk a lot about also her kind of how she honed in on her own artistic voice and her time at AFI and how that kind of helped serve her. So if you're curious about film school and whether that's interesting or not to you, I think that's another big thing that we touch on. Yeah, I think one of these patterns we see a lot is we see these filmmakers that seem kind of young and new and you're like, ah, oh, they just made it so fast. How did they do it so fast? And then you talk to them and you're like, oh, this person has done every program, went to film school undergrad, went to grad school. And it's, you know, Yoko is like this perfect example of a person that has just like hustled and worked so hard and like honed her craft and created so many things that it just reminds me at least the, about the perseverance that's required to be 
a working director in this business. And so it's, it's awesome and it's inspiring. And I think you'll enjoy our talk with her. But before we talk to Yoko, I had a question for you, Matt. What have you been thinking about lately? What have I been thinking about? Uh, because I haven't been working. I've just been kind of... <laughs> no, but because I'm setting you up because I know you had a, a slight epiphany. Uh, yeah. You know, a, a thing that I... Boy, this podcast and career in Hollywood, if there's one thing that they both have in common, it's that you constantly are relearning the same lessons over and over again. Or just being reminded that, you know, certain things hold true uh, throughout a career. Yeah. Randy um, Tiny. Sure. Lefty Lucy. Lucy. No. Um, so I, regular listeners will remember that I've kind of been in the early stages of taking a new project out. It's a feature and I haven't done a ton of work in that space. And so I'm kind of looking to kind of create some new introductions and things like that. And I was reminded that basically the rule is, or the the lesson that I've had, the epiphany that I've had is that it's so much easier to ask a specific question it's much, so much more effective to ask a specific question than a general question, regardless of how badly the person you're speaking with wants to help you, right? So for instance, you know, if you're looking for anyone who maybe would be interested in working on this movie, which feels like a totally good and valid question and maybe is, it just requires that people sort of comb their mental Rolodex of literally every single person they know who might possibly like the the crazy movie that you're trying to make right and you don't want to ask a close-ended question right that's the mentality you want to be able to keep things open and you know for them if you say oh i'm looking for a producer and they're thinking of a an actor who they you know could produce but is really you know whatever you don't want to close things off but it just it takes a lot of mental energy and bandwidth for people to come up with answers to that open of a question whereas if you're like hey I noticed this person or I, I've been looking to meet this person or that person or even this type or someone at this company. It's a heck of a lot easier for them to be like, yes or no, I know this person. Yeah. I mean, or even if you go on Facebook and you say, hey, I noticed that you know know this actor, know this development exec or know this. Do you think you can introduce me to them? It's so much easier than what do you think I should do with my movie? Or do you know any producers you can send this to? It's the, I think the most common example that we've talked about many times is the like, hey, I'd love to take you out for coffee and pick your brain. And then you go to coffee with this person that's there to pick your brain. And you're like, yeah, pick pick my brain. What do you, what do you want? And they're like, well, what do you think I should do? And I'm like, uh, what do you want to do? <laughs> yeah. Do that? Yeah. And that's not to say I get it. I get why people, I've done that. You've done that. Yeah. No, I learned the hard way that general questions will give you get you general answers and that whenever you're asking for help, your number one objective should be to make it as easy as possible for the person you're asking for help from to give you that help. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, my, that's exactly My right. kind of common example is like, let's say you made a web series or you made a short film or you made a movie and you want someone at BuzzFeed to write an article about it or Jezebel or whatever. You email them about it. You say like, hey, you know, I know you've written about this topic before. I made this short about it. I thought you could pitch it as this and this and this. And even when people pitch guests to our podcast, they say, oh, we thought, you know, so-and-so can come on your podcast and talk about how she did this or how she did that. And I think you and I are instantly more receptive to that because we don't have to figure out what to talk about. Like someone is, is giving us uh, an entry point. So I think I know that's a little more macro than what you're saying, but the idea of 
asking for something and being very specific, like 99 times out of 100, you'll get better results than asking for something very generic. Like, hey, you should have me on your podcast. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's also a thing where the older we get, the busier our peers are, right? Like their people are getting promoted, they're making other things. So, you know, if you, if it's a question that they can answer on their way from the elevator to their office, you know, on their phone, you're going to get an answer. If it's like, ah, I really, I kind of need to sit down and Google or maybe do some thinking or whatever, just kind of sinks down the stack. So I think that's the other thing to think about is, you know, who is answering and what sort of answer are you hoping for? If it's literally a yes or no, it's a heck of a lot easier. Yeah. I remember when I first moved to LA, I was doing a lot of camera stuff and people would always email me like, hey, what camera should I get, Oren? And it, I would be like, okay, well, I'm not going to answer that email right now because I need to spend two hours doing researching you know, this, and I'd write them a long email about the pros and cons of the different models and how much they want to spend and what they want to use it for. And then they'd like never respond to me and it would make me furious. Yeah. Well, I I think it's also important to note that like the circumstances specifically where this technique has been helpful in every circumstance, all of the people I'm talking to, they're just, they're genuine, they're friends I've known for years. So they all actually want to help me. So it, it, I want to just make sure that it's clear in the same way that you really wanted to help the person who didn't want to read this giant email about uh, about cameras and stuff. You know, there's nothing personal about any of it. It's just like fine tuning how to get an answer that's helpful. So like if, if someone was just like, hey, Orin, I was thinking of buying the 5D, yes or no? You probably would have just been like, oh, you know, the 60D. I would never have said that. I know you never would have said that. <laughs> No, uh, I'm kidding. But yeah, so I think I think that's a good lesson. I think it's something that even I, you know, when, when a lot of people get reps, you know, we have that issue where like, great, I have a manager, I have an agent. Now, what do I do with this person? And they're really only as useful as you can figure out specifically what to ask them for. I mean, it, it depends. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a little bit more. They're in the business of collaborating with you, but also I think it's there's a big difference between the first three months of working with someone and, you know, three years down the line in terms of game plans and strategy and all of that stuff. Yeah. Okay. So I guess that was a bad example. No, I think it's a great example, but I think that things shift, right? You know, and again, it's like managing people's times and expectations. I, the thing that actually maybe is pertinent also is like, I feel like agents it's a power move to write fewer words. Like the fewer words that an agent writes, the more powerful they feel. And so that's not a blanket rule, but I know that there are genuinely plenty of them that do feel that way. And it drives me insane. I feel like like, it's just an efficient people that are efficient communicators, write Short emails. Yeah. There's a difference between short emails and so short that they feel flippant where you're like, Hey, did we get the details of the detail of the deal yet? And they write back. Yes. Yeah, you're like, all right, I need a little bit more. Like, yes, we'll follow up once we have them finished. Exactly. That would be fine. Speaking of finished, we're done with this intro. Let's tell people about our Patreon page. That's right, patreon.com slash justshootapod. Yeah, if you go to patreon.com slash justshootapod, right now you can support this podcast, the podcast 
that we literally get dozens of emails about a week telling us how much this uh, podcast has helped you, you can give us a few bucks to um, help it go. I know that maybe sometimes being a Patreon, you don't know how much we appreciate you, but I want to tell people, to tell our patrons uh, from Patreon that we, we it really does mean a lot to us. It really does make a huge difference in keeping this podcast going. Matt and I... I, I would say it's safe to say that if we didn't have the Patreon, the, the show wouldn't still be on the air. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we literally, I think maybe three years into the show, we're like, oh, should we do seasons? And then we just kind of gave up on that idea because we literally put out an episode a new episode every single week. We don't even do any of that like best of episode crap that every other podcast does. So yeah, the the Patreon is is the thing that keeps us going, that keeps us motivated, keeps us booking new guests and excited to talk to all of you and meet the listeners. So check it out. Patreon.com slash just here to pod. It makes the show possible because we continue to to realize that we need different resources and bigger and better help. You know, Sarah, shout out to Sarah, our editor, who uh, has taken on more responsibilities. We brought on a social media manager, all sorts of stuff that is helping the show grow. Thanks, everyone. Yeah. And if you uh, give us 10 bucks, even once, you'll get a Just Shoot It hat, which is very cool. And anyone that posts the story with a Just Shoot It hat, as is evidenced by Just Shoot It listener Emilio, we will repost that, that photo we on our story reposting. Yeah. we love we love reposting your photos so just do it it's fun it's like we become friends by you wearing that hat anyway very long plug for our patreon i apologize patreon.com slash just shoot a pod check it out we love you guys and now we're gonna talk to yoko okamura Hey folks, we're interrupting this incredible episode of the podcast to tell you about a new sponsor that we're working with, Front Row Insurance Brokers. One of the challenges of being a filmmaker is that there's a lot of risks that we take and we really just want to focus on making good stuff. So what if there was a company that could take those risks, manage them for us while we are being artists? That's right. Front Row Insurance Brokers arranges film production insurance to cover the risks associated with your production. They cover features, TV shows, documentaries, commercials, music videos, webisodes, basically anything you can watch on big media or phone-sized screens. Yeah, Front Row will help you focus on your artistic vision by transferring all the risks to them and minimizing your production hazards. And they cover any budget from $2,000 all the way up to $200 million. There's nothing that's too small or too big. If you are shooting in Canada, use coupon code JUSTSHOOTIT50OFF for 50 bucks off your film production insurance. That's promo code JUSTSHOOTIT50OFF to save 50 bucks. And if you're shooting in the U.S., that same code can be redeemed offline by mentioning it to a broker, by email, or over the phone. It's like a cool password if you're in the U.S. That's just shoot it 50 off. Check him out. Let us know how it goes. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey folks, we're interrupting this incredible episode of the podcast to tell you about a new sponsor that we're working with, Front Row Insurance Brokers. One of the challenges of being a filmmaker is that there's a lot of risks that we take and we really just want to focus on making good stuff. So what if there was a company that could take those risks, manage them for us while we are being artists? That's right. Front Row Insurance Brokers arranges film production insurance to cover the risks associated with your production. They cover features, TV shows, documentaries, commercials, music videos, webisodes, basically anything you can watch on big media or phone-sized screens. Yeah, Front Row will help you focus on your artistic vision by transferring all the risks to them and minimizing your production hazards. And they cover any budget from $2,000 all the way up to $200 million. There's nothing that's too small or too big. If you are shooting in Canada, use coupon code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off for 50 bucks off your film production insurance. That's promo code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off to save 50 bucks. And if you're shooting in the U.S., that same code can be redeemed offline by mentioning it to a broker, by email, or over the phone. It's like a cool password if you're in the U.S. That's JUSTSHOOTIT50 off. Check them out. Let us know how it goes. Yeah, congrats on your um, your gig you just did in Canada. Thank you. I just got back and I'm very happy to be back in uh, the warm weather of Los Angeles. Remind us, what were you doing in Canada? I was directing my first uh, block of television, which is two episodes, um, on a freeform show called The Bold Type. Oh, cool. I love typography. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. Did you do a serif episode or a sans serif episode? I know they kind of go back and forth. Bold uh, is the only part that I know of. <laughs> I you I cannot make a font joke if my life depended on it. I, I, so I I'm did, so sorry. Uh, I pulled the the best one I had. So uh, you know. yeah, just shut the Helvetic up, okay? Man? Oof. 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 Yikes! Oof. I'm Yikes! Uh, I'm impressed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Dad jokes. Look out! Yeah. Arnie cursing. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, bold type freeform. That's cool. And you had done. TV before though, right? 50 States of Fright? 
Isn't that, yeah, isn't so that not TV? I guess technically DGA World, it was new media. It's in the oh, premium the digital show? world. Yes. Right? Yeah. 50 States yeah. of Fright was a Quibi show that I did like, you know, an installment of an anthology of. So that was my first like DGA gig, but it was not television, quote unquote. My first like one hour drama television show was called Good Trouble, which is also Ooh, a freeform yeah. show. And that I shot in November and it just came out like a few weeks ago. Oh, my wife was pinned twice for that show and then she didn't get the part. So Really? Oh, dang. Could Bummer. Be, yeah. Could be your fault. Could be my fault. Uh, pro- yeah. Probably. I'm curious what character she was going for. Do you shoot that after 50 States of Fright, right? Yes. 50 States of Fright was September and October 2019, I believe. And Good Trouble was November 2020. So there was a whole year that passed in between those two projects. Well, maybe let's rewind because I think you have kind of a a recent history. Let's kind of talk about where you learned to be a filmmaker. Did you go to film school? Yes, I've gone to a what I call an embarrassing amount of film school, um, an abundance of film school. Yeah. And it even started in high school. Like even in high school, I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We had a um, arts high school that was government funded. So I went to a media arts program for the last few years of high school. So I was learning DV, you know, DV camera filmmaking and Final Cut and all that jazz. And um, from there, went to Cal Arts, And that was, you know, back in the, the early 2000s. And um, yeah, I've been in LA ever since. But it's been a rocky, long road. Like I've done so many different kinds of positions, like before I really committed to being a director. It's been like years of, you know, I was a camera assistant. I was producing documentaries. I was, you know, an ec- extra. Like I really have done everything. <laughs> Well, oh, let's cool. let's talk a let's little talk bit about, about the extra work. So how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you say peas and carrots or watermelon? <laughs> what's your what's your method there? No, no. Let's talk about AFI actually, because I don't think that we've had a ton of AFI students or any other kind of like art school oriented uh, guests. Actually, I think that's worth talking about. I come from a more like quote unquote Hollywood style of film schools. Like USC is like Hollywood University, right? So it's it's very narrative oriented. You know, right. like it's like how to. Make make Forrest Gump how to yeah exactly genuinely right like you go to USC because you know George Lucas went there and you know you see Steven Spielberg wearing a USC hat AFI you know plenty of very famous alums but is is real artsy fartsy you know, and in, in a, no, in a way that's AFI? A, or sorry, pardon my CalArts. I meant CalArts. Yeah, pardon me. CalArts. Yeah, yeah. And then AFI is much more craft oriented. We'll get to that in a second. But so undergrad, you know, like, you know, famously Tim Burton came out of uh, CalArts, right? Like all of the like major Disney and Pixar people came out of CalArts. Uh, Some of Penn the best Ward. Like, animators, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's definitely the Harvard of animation. Yeah. I did not go for animation. I went to the. Uh, Film video department undergrad, so very different. Follow-up question then, were you making narrative film or were you doing more experimental work or like, tell us about the, those sorts of, that sort of environment and the way that artsy-fartiness bleeds over into your, your uh, brain. Yes, it was absolutely artsy-fartsy. That is the correct term for the school. It was absolutely not narrative-based. And, you know, I spent the first few years making experimental films, for sure. Uh, All this, you know, all the classes are taught by, like, gallery artists who was, like, height was in the 70s and, you know, partying and doing drugs and making, you know, gallery art with video. And uh, so, yeah, that was kind of my... (laughs) foundation and I was enjoying that at the time and then I kind of like was also like dabbling in documentary and get and um experimenting in that form 
But then eventually there was something in me that knew I wanted to do more narrative work. Um, and that's what I was drawn to. So I actually started to take like, I, I would ask graduate um, level class, like teachers and instructors, like if I could take those classes. So, cause, um, CalArts MFA like, is- Sorry, you're only paying 120,000 a year. That's like the $250,000 a year. Program. Yeah, exactly. Stay away. No, they were down for me to join. Um, you know, you take the initiative and you can kind of do whatever you want to at that school. So I took grad classes that was much more about scene work and narrative work. And um, even it was still artsy fartsy, the, you know, the, the scenes we were doing and stuff. But sure, yeah. sure. It's all relative. Right. But yeah. That, so that's interesting. So when when did you realize, oh, I want to be doing kind of more traditional work? And was that in rebellion to the sort of the the more abstract stuff that you were doing? Is that kind of what drew it out of you? Like, where where did that realization come from? I don't think I ever had like an aha moment um, that I could describe to you. It really was an evolution of just like my interests. And um, I think I just did start to genuinely get bored of of work that was so esoteric and that work that really needed like a descriptor in order to actually understand it. And um I kept even in experimental work, I was much more, you know, emotion and story based anyway. And I, I wanted to feel something right. And a lot of times these this, you know, gallery artwork, even if it was beautiful, even if it was like intellectually stimulating, you know, it, that, that was it was lacking the humanity for me. So I just naturally gravitated towards wanting to learn about, you know, working with actors and telling stories. And is that what inspired you to go to AFI thereafter? Yeah. So, you know, I, uh, after graduating CalArts, you know, I worked at uh, Sugarfish. Like that was my life is being Which a hostess. Which is a fancy sushi restaurant. Yes, but With correct. a genuine cult following, right? Like people love Sugarfish. Yeah. I it was. Seems... I used to be in that cult. Really? Oh, yeah. Are you yeah. no longer? Are you? Have no, you been... he, no, he's a Nobu guy now. That's what oh. happened. Even fancier. No, 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 no. no. I, Sugarfish. So to our listeners that haven't been there, like the allure for me as a fairly clueless person is that you go in, there's you, like basically three things you can order. The trust me, trust me light or Nozawa special, whatever the, I don't know. I, I always got the trust me. So I don't know what the other ones were. But then you just, you tell the the server, you know, if there's anything you don't eat in particular, and then they just bring you, at the time, the first time you go there, it feels like they bring you whatever is on their mind, you know? Like, what's what's the fresh fish? Oh, Chef Nozawa went to the market and his brother or whatever sent him this fish from Japan this morning. The mackerel is amazing or whatever. And it just felt like this custom bespoke, like, experience. And the fish was so good. It was like biting into, like butter you know and it was like real and they'd be like don't put sauce on it don't put soy sauce and it's like this magical experience but then you know the 50th time you go there and it's that exact same thing and they're kind of giving you the same things you got the first time and you're like okay i will put the soy sauce on whatever damn fish i please um, <laughs> the illusion was broken for you yeah and then once you get get it t for takeout it's like totally like you lose that whole experience which is what I've done, you Listen, know, during COVID. So Yoko realized that she loves telling stories, <laughs> and this was actually a perfect opportunity to weave the tapestry of of a bespoke sushi experience. So after CalArts, you know, I was doing second ACing, but that wasn't making enough money. So then I got, you know, work as Sugarfish and 
through all of that, somehow I, yeah, I made a short called The Darlings. I made uh, documentary shorts. Tell us about The Darlings real quick. Give us the, the log line, just kind of like, just to set up what sort of work you were interested in at the time. Yeah, The Darlings was very abstract and very calartsy, actually. It was about two girls who, you know, uh, talk about killing a boyfriend but in a very abstract way hey, where you have no idea what they're talking about pretty much the whole time. At least they're speaking dialogue. You yeah, know what I mean? <laughs> there was dialogue. Even that early on, you know, I was in my early 20s. Like, I could see my stamp of, like, liking very colorful and, like, you know, curated wardrobe and, uh, you know, production design aesthetics. So that was already there. And, um, yeah, I think the greatest thing that came out of CalArts really was, like, the friendships, right? Like, so I was surrounded by filmmakers who were all, you know, all struggling together and making films together. And, um... I, my roommates at the time were also filmmakers, so I had that resource of a group that I could make films with. So yeah, with like, I think 500 bucks or something, we made a short called The Darlings, and that I used to submit to AFI. I had another short that I made right after CalArts that was very narrative, just so I could challenge myself to make a narrative film. It was, it was silly, it was cute, it was about a little girl who like, sneaks into her neighbor's house to like, steal back the unknown like a, a, a gnome like figurine that was like the Minnesota Vikings. It was very silly, but that that cost like 500 bucks too. And I just was practicing shorts for a pretty long time. And do you feel like these shorts were like helping your career in any way? Or was it more like practice as a filmmaker? I mean, at like, that did time. Did you do festivals and all that stuff? Oh, I mean, I'm sure I submitted, but I didn't get into any festivals. Like I... No, I absolutely did not get into any festivals. Um, but I kept making them, man. I was, I'm addicted to shorts. I can't stop. So were they, was there an intention though? Like, were you like, we'll make this, we'll try to get into festivals, we'll like, or we'll adapt this into a feature? Or was it more like, I have an idea, wouldn't it be funny if two women are talking about something and we, then we realize it's about killing their boyfriend? Yeah, I mean, that one I did, I, I definitely think we made with the intention of, um, so I co-directed that and then um, co-wrote it as well. And at that point, we were hoping that it could get into festivals and hoping that it could, you know, do something for our careers. But ultimately, it didn't, it wasn't helpful in that regards of like exposure and getting into festivals. But for me, it was very helpful of um, being a work sample to get into AFI. In terms of timeline, I feel like now we have Film Freeway. But before that, you kind of just had to like, you know, find a list of good film festivals and then like Google them, right? Like now it's, it's, it's all a cart. You can just like, you know, you put in your credit card and you go boop, 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 boop. And they're, you know, it's submitted everywhere, right? Yeah, but, but the so, Darlings is 2013. So 2013, box, yeah, yes, yeah, so you could have done without a box. height. 2013, it's fun. Again, IMDb, you know, it's it's not as accurate as you might think it is because we made it in 2011, 2012. And then I guess took a while to, up, you know, put it yeah, on yeah, IMDb. Yeah. yeah. Yes. But I, I guess my point being like, I think there's the mentality of like, oh, yeah, we'll make a short and like we'll submit it to South by and Sundance and Tribeca and a, few, a handful of places. And, you know, maybe my friends work at Nashville or Austin or something like that. We should send it there. But for the most part, you don't, you know, submit a ton of places when you're young and maybe you don't know quite as many festivals, right? But there are those tools specifically from Film Freeway now where you can kind of expand your horizons a little bit more. And I think uh, also when you're young and broke, when you spend $500 on your, your short and that's a lot of friggin' money, 50 bucks a pop on these festivals is pretty rough too, you know? Yeah, it's a, a ton of money. And um, somehow you just kind of scrape by and do it. That's almost half a trust me at Sugarfish. I know, <laughs> I know. Oh my gosh. No, I could not afford Sugarfish when I worked at Sugarfish. So yeah, yeah, no doubt. I, 
I felt that pain. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think out of CalArts, again, my group of friends were doing pretty well. I mean, a lot of them are doing well still. Um, but yeah, I think we had, uh, my friend had gotten into Sundance, like right out of CalArts. And so we all kind of went and stuff. And so we were, we were pretty familiar with film festivals. But yeah, it was still kind of the early uh, without a box world. And that website was no bueno. <laughs> that, that was a terrible <laughs> interface. Um, and yeah, but yeah, we were familiar with them to at least know like where to, you know, put our money and lose it. Sure. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. And at that time, you were were you focused on directing? Like that's like the end goal is like you want to direct stuff, right? Because you said you're also doing some technical stuff, and obviously you're some doing some writing and like the camera yeah. stuff. Yeah. While you're crewing, you're still like, oh, I and the prize directing is the thing. Kinda. You know. I mean, deep down, yes, the desire was to direct and to write and to make my own films. But honestly, like. There was so much self-consciousness and feeling like a loser after film school and like working at a sushi restaurant and being like, how dare I even dreamed and how could I even say I want to be a director? Like everybody wants to be a director. So there was a lot of like feeling not good enough that made it so I probably couldn't even vocalize that at that age mm-hmm. um, looking back mm-hmm. now. And do you feel like that was part of the reason why you kept making shorts and you know like was it like a thing of taking baby steps oh maybe grad school will help with that or like what helped you get over that eventually yeah i think afi was the big um step that made me finally feel like okay i can own the identity of director and i can own the desire to succeed as a director um once i got into afi that was definitely the catalyst and so you went to afi in the on the directing track right Mm-hmm. Yes, I had originally like actually intended of applying as a producer and even like toward it as as like interested in a producer. But I think somehow along the way, I, I realized kind of the um, self-conscious kind of BS I was, you know, telling myself of like, oh, you should do a producer, like, which is kind of the secondary thing I wanted to do. So I think I owned up to my actual desire and was like, fuck it, I'll, you know, apply to be a director. That's cool. And so how was AFI? Like, I, I'm seeing your next... I'm, I apologize for reading about you on IMDb. Yeah, you better be. Very but I sorry. See, but I see that your next short after The Darlings was Last Meal. Was that an AFI short? That was an AFI short. And um, in between The Darlings and Last Meal was like, like one, two, three three other AFI shorts that never even go on to IMDb because they're considered like your cycle films are like very much practice films. Um, so I made like full three short films that first year I was a directing um, fellow. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's nothing like practicing, you know, having a dedicated time to practice like that and um, be able to make mistakes and try different genres, try different techniques. And uh, AFI to me in that way was so uh, incredible because, yeah, I got to try things that I never could have afforded on my own if I had not, you know, taken out the student loans and done sure. it. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and also, like, I think the the deadlines and then also the community are the other things. It sounds like you weren't lacking in community, like with your, your Cal Arts friends. But I think for people at home listening, like, oh, maybe film school's for me. Those are the other things that tend to kind of. Yes. You know, yeah, the cycle films at AFI, at, when I went there, was about, like, I think 3000 or $4,000 each film was, like, the budget you had to work within. And obviously, the school, as a part of your tuition, is that they provide that budget. Um, and that is not an amount of money I could have, you know, access to make my own short films. Oh, so that's interesting. So they give you that money cash, and that's what you're putting towards, like, wardrobe and props and, and stuff like that? Or, or 
You know, I actually don't know how that worked if they got a debit card or got actual cash from the school because I was not in producing. I let the producers uh-huh. take care of it. Uh, I have no idea. But the producers, yeah, yeah, gotcha. But gotcha. that's fine. That's kind that's of cool. what we were able to do for yeah, like hiring some people that we needed, um, getting wardrobe and getting you know feeding people. That was all stuff that they had to budget for. Um, but like the crew was a lot, mostly our stu- you know fellow students, so they were free. Or maybe Oren. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, did. <laughs> I, I honestly like learned a lot at AFI. My, I had a friend that went there. Uh, she was a producer, and I worked on like all her shorts, and then all her friends' shorts, and I was just working on everything. And um, Lauren was like the weird guy who was crewing for free, and you never saw in classes. Yeah, yeah oh, then, we like, had a lot lunch, of those. Yeah, yeah. And sure. At, on, at lunch, like during an AFI shoot, like all the friend, all the students would sit together, and I would just be like um, sitting with like the uh, you know the catering guy. Yeah, um, that's funny. Oh, you should have joined them. We're, we don't bite. I'm sure you would have been welcome. <laughs> yeah. No, even like, my hey, friend who hired me I'll pretended not to free. know me. <laughs> um, no, I actually applied to AFI while I was working on an AFI short, and I got uh, the rejection while I was like dolly gripping. Oh, oh, while you were gripping. Oh, no. Yeah. And they're like, Orrin, get off the phone. Dolly needs to go over here. Carry this up four flights of stairs <laughs> by oh, yourself. That- that's such a scene in a movie. Yeah, um, yeah it was. Yeah. But uh, so what did you what did you learn at AFI? I'm curious. Oh, my gosh. Like everything. You know, I think before I went to AFI, I didn't even know what I had to learn. Like I didn't even know that what I didn't know. You know, like what are what are some things? Because obviously you'd gone to film school, you'd made shorts, you'd worked on sets, you worked on Shutter Island, apparently, according to IMDb, which lies about everything. That one's Just, true. <laughs> um. And so you you had an idea of like the things that it takes to make a movie, at least on a practical logistical level. But what did you learn at AFI that you didn't even know that you didn't know? Um, definitely like that there's an actual like craft of directing, um, like tool sets that you can learn that you can continuously like fall back on in order to tell an emotionally evocative story for the audience. Like what's an example of that? Like a over the shoulder shot? Yeah, exactly. Just uh, mediums, close-ups, and extra extreme close-ups. Or in your 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 uh, quote unquote busting balls here, but that sort of stuff. No, no, I'm, I'm not busting. I'm, like, I'm like, genuinely some of that stuff. Yeah. You and I don't want to by in any way like put down art schools, but they are not focused on some things that we take for granted. Do you know what I mean? Like and the so, line of action or whatever. Like kind yeah, of just like film or, or, making or maybe they things. do a little bit of it, but then they're kind of moving into like, this is what happens when you put, you know, your film in the oven, you know, <laughs> come uh, your assignment is everybody has to figure out a different experimental technique that's going to make unique images. And like, that's super interesting. And you could, you know, all sorts of different ways you could apply it, but that's not the same as like what Ron Howard teaches in his master class. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, so, but, what what was your like what are kind of the big takeaways from AFI that that you maybe weren't learning on your own, you know? Um I think the C word there is collaboration. Um and they really hone in on how incredibly important that is and then we are building together like a different a, a specific vocabulary to lean on because again, you know, we have a lot of film schools, you are kind of hopping different roles, right? You might be an editor one day, a director one day, a producer one day. At AFI, we're all dedicated in our tracks from the very beginning. So you really learn how you need to collaborate and communicate with people to the degree you'll have to when you're a professional outside of school. I mean, one of the first assignments that we had to do at first year was um, 
a director was like matched with a cinematographer, right? And then they would, uh, the teacher would give you like a prompt, like this is a scene about a woman who just lost her child. And you had to go run off like on campus or off campus and like do a um, story within a frame. So you had to like figure out together how to tell a story with just one frame and go like- Without like, moving the camera. Without moving the camera, just one still image and like how to evoke that emotion and how to tell it by where the camera is, how to tell it by the physicality of the characters in it. So stuff like that, you know, like things that, again, like That's CalArts was not going to teach me that. Yeah, 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 for sure. That is very yeah. cool. That's also. a really, really cool exercise for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so the subjectivity of the camera and how you use it in order to communicate, you know, in order to get an emotional reaction out of an audience, like that was a huge part of what I personally learned is like the POV of the, the, the emotional POV of a narrative and what that really, really means. That's like AFI's favorite thing, right? Is like the POV, right? Like who's yeah. point of, who, whose shot is this? Well, so some when I was working on those shorts, you know, I, I was joking about being so disconnected, but I was also making, you know, my own short films and YouTube videos and things. And I remember if we, you know, I would hire or bring on like a cinematographer and I'd bring on like a some sort of art person and we'd be like, oh yeah, this room needs to look like a doctor's office and let's, you know, whatever, shoot this in the easiest way possible. I've direction. got a skeleton and um, some tissue yeah, paper and, for your bed or something. Yeah, 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 and that's how I kind of thought of filmmaking. And then I would see the students at AFI and I'd see the production designer has like schematics of like the set and diagrams and elevations and like um, a mood board. And then I saw the DP would have like a PDF file or a deck that they had printed out of images, reference images and research and inspiration. And I was like, oh, this is like what people that are serious about this do. And that's something I, I was never really a part of it but i witnessed it at afi I witnessed like the dp and the director looking at visual references and i was like wow that's that seems cool and it's something that it's so obvious once you've done it but when you're just a bunch of kids making videos together it might not occur to you to to kind of be intentional in that way if your question is like uh like i wrote a funny video about a doctor's office the question the obvious thought is like well how can we shoot in a doctor's office or make my bedroom look like one? Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. But that's really AFI, great. AFI, there was a, a lot, and I'm sure most film schools, there's a lot more thought, like what color, what kind of wallpaper would this doctor have? And what does this tell about him? And what's on the shelves and um, where's the camera and all that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that sort, and that um, the process of figuring that out is very much was integrated into like the prep process and it was expected of us. And, um, you know, the DPs have to do these crazy books, like these huge books, like that break down and analyze every single scene that they do and the choices they made, the lenses they use and why, and like the narrative perspective and like the emotional like point of view and like, like books, like huge books that look like dictionaries they have to submit and like get reviewed by their faculty. And like they, those books are a big part of whether they get invited back or not. And um, so yeah, a huge amount goes into oh, educating wait. us on that. When you say get invited back, is it not guaranteed that you complete the the program? It is not guaranteed. It Weren't like Aronofsky of... and David Lynch like famously not invited back or something? Yeah. So back in the day, it really was very cutthroat in that sense of like the half the class could get cut and like nobody comes back. But now it's more like maybe one or two people might not be invited back per track and yeah, I think my directing class had one person who wasn't invited back. Um, I think the DP track had two people. It's it's less aggressive as it used to be, I think, but it still happens. Boy, that really sucks 
much more for the people who don't get invited back. Like when half the class gets invited back, it's a little easier to live with yourself. Right. When you're like, oh man, I'm the only person. <laughs> yeah. That's rough. Though I will say I didn't get into production at USC. I got into critical studies, which is like the nerdy theory part. And I know a lot of people... I, th I think those early rejections, I think, are genuinely super important and valuable for your durability as a filmmaker into the future, basically. Like, if you if you suck it up as, like, as a teenager in your early 20s, you can go the distance, you know? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think famously, like, the most famous alumni at AFI didn't do their second years, <laughs> right? Like, Aronofsky and <laughs> sure. stuff. Like, the people they claim as their most, you know, valuable uh, alumni didn't get invited back, and they just, you know, use that to fuel them to actually succeed. Yeah, right, and right. sometimes it's not about... Yeah you as a filmmaker as much as you as a student probably yes. sure yeah 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 that's definitely true okay so you went to afi you made a thesis film and that got you uh caa reps and tv deals mm -hmm. yeah uh, yeah so <laughs> put, put like five seven years in between that but correct Kind of. Yeah, I made a thesis film. That's so our second year is completely dedicated to the thesis film. And you're, you know, you're teaming up with people and getting married to them as a team for the year. And uh, that film. So that's how I met Kevin. That film uh, called Kimi Kabuki was my short film. It was about a housewife that follows her husband to a porn convention and then learns about intimacy from an unexpected source. That was so and fun. You to wrote make. it, too. I wrote it, too. Yeah. Wrote and so directed how did you that. come up with it? I came up with that short idea. AFI was also a big part of teaching me, like, the best stories for you to tell are the ones that, you know, you have some emotional pain behind that's very authentic to you. And I always knew that, like, you know, pornography was something, and like, coming up as a teenager, as a young girl, like, in the early aughts, was something that was never contextualized to me properly. And so, like, it's just something that you get exposed to as a teenage girl, like, because your boyfriend is watching it and you, like, catch him, right? And then you just have no idea what to do with that information. And you just, and for me, it was like, I felt compared to it, like, you know, like small compared to it, like ugly compared to it. Like I could never be that. And so it was always this like pain that I held around from a very young like age. And so as an adult, I knew like, you know, I knew better. I, I understood what it was intellectually, you know, that it's a fantasy, that it's fabricated, that it doesn't, you know, d devalue me. But there was still this like teenager inside of me emotionally, you know, so I saw that and I knew that that was some fodder for short film. And um, originally the film was through the POV of a porn star. But then eventually I just kind of it did, it wasn't working. So um, when you say it wasn't working, how did you workshop that? Was that in, in a like a, a writing workshop or was that just table reads? How did you figure out? So at AFI, um, in our second year, we have a whole class dedicated to the thesis project. And through the entirety of the year, you're bringing the you're bringing um, you're you're reading the scripts and you're getting feedback from your classmates and your teachers about like how the script is feeling, how it's working. You also have you know within your team of producer, DP, production designer, editor, um, you're assigned a mentor. And that mentor is the primary source of telling you if your script is working or not, if you're getting deep enough or not. Um, so and in those workshops and men mentor sessions, like we could just tell that like the the predominant POV of, of the porn star wasn't quite relatable. There wasn't quite enough proper drama to it. Um, yeah, it was about her like losing a job that she wanted because they find out she used to be a porn star. But the stakes were weird and like it just wasn't clicking. So one frustrated, you know, afternoon, I think I just 
almost like, you know, filmmaker breakdown. I was like, what am I doing? I don't know. And um, just wrote down the most honest, emotionally honest version of what I thought the story should be. And that was essentially the, you know, housewife that goes to a porn convention and is a fish out of water was was me emotionally. Right, you know? right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's great. I love that so much. And I, and I think that there are things to take home from that, though, right? Like, there's so many nuggets there, right? Like, the emotional truth behind it, um, but also kind of on a more practical level, I think it's interesting to think about how people workshop, right, in an academic environment or elsewhere. Like, do you have a brain trust? Are you taking it? Like, who are you showing it to? How do you kind of figure that out, you know, outside of that environment, basically? Um, do you feel like since then you've been able to take those lessons and ideas and apply them to your own work in other ways? Um, lessons and ideas that I kind of got from the, the mm-hmm. workshop pro- project. Yeah. Yeah. Process? Yeah. W- workshopping just film school in general, but I guess I, I'm, I'm asking, you know, outside of AFI specifically to your shorts, I think is maybe the most germane. It's like, okay, like what helped you decide what to work on next? What helped you how did you know when things clicked in and, you know, and when did you know when to go into production basically? Yeah. Um, you know, I said that I made those first three films right at AFI first year and those films, I saw twinkles of myself in them, but ultimately I, I find those films as, you know, fun, but failures, (laughs) like they weren't effective in communicating what, you know, really doing what I wanted it to do. And on so, the terms of emotional truth, they're failures, basically. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's not an aesthetic thing or a, a technical thing at all. They all work in their great fun movies, but like they're not as personal as you want them to be. That's great. Exactly. And then I finally arrived at the, the thesis film and like went through the, you know, dark night of, of the soul to get to a, a, a thesis film that I think was working and personal to me. And that process was essential to make to to teaching me how to now then navigate all the projects that came after it. It really was like the light bulb moment that made me go like, oh, this is my voice. This is how you utilize your personal narrative and yet like abstract it into a different kind of, you know, story that's not literally your story. So yeah, it was essential. I think that's what's so cool about that whole thing and even just the way you pitched us this story and like how the idea came you came up with it like like i could see when you're in film school and someone's making like a sci-fi fantasy someone's making like a time travel thing someone's making like a war thing you know these kind of big set piece things you know or a period piece or something and you're like i want to tell this story you know i have this kind of interesting like poignant take on like pornography in our culture and what's the most interesting, like, kind of sharp way in? And it's, like, through the eyes of the porn star, right? Because that's, like, we, you know, that's what we all imagine, you know? But then you go, and I'm assuming with, like, the same budget that you have to do this porn star thing, you're grounding it into, like, something that's more you. And I'm guessing that, like, you see all your fellow, you know, filmmaking students are doing these, like, big crazy genre set pieces and you're doing it about a housewife that's going to have a, one conversation with her they husband. still go to a convention though right yeah they go to a convention and it's but it's that's big. a it's set a, piece that's a you know yeah, yeah. i'm just saying yeah but, but, but different oh it's a different color than, right than, but finding that that the know. truth is more important than the spectacle you know of it all it's kind of cool it's cool how you came to it and it's i think it's an it's a problem i always have too in storytelling is i'm like what is who's the most interesting person in the scene and what's the craziest vantage point? What's the most like unexpected, surprising, original thing I've never seen before. And sometimes I lose track of like, like, well, why am I making this? You know? 
Yeah, I think that I, I still struggle with that. I mean, you know, I, the short that I made after AFI more independently, but before like 50 States um, was a punk rock musical. And it definitely had a message that was very personal to me. But I do think that film, like, even though I feel like it's a successful film for me that I love, um, the aesthetic and my like desire to make a musical almost I, I sometimes feel like overrode some of the emotional uh, storytelling elements. So yeah, I, I, st- I, I think that that's a struggle that we all go through of like, oh, it's so fun to do this, but are you telling the story properly? Yeah, well, and it's also hard because sometimes, you know, you, you've done such a great job of like articulating the specific, not just the logline, but why that film was important to you in such a concise and clear way that like everyone is jealous, right? Like, oh, dang. That's personal. That's so smart. That's filled with drama. And you na- you, you've got it in one sentence. But I'm betting that even after that, you know, the, the morning after the dark night of the soul, it wasn't that articulate yet. Right. And so you're probably still following like, OK, you know, uh, this porn thing is interesting and this point of view maybe needs to shift and you're, you're still refining things. Right. And so in, in the same way that like, uh, being drawn to a punk rock aesthetic is is important to listen to right like it's not always so crystal clear what you're trying to say and you just have to kind of like you know go where your heart takes you a little bit with what's drawing it you know and sometimes that's articulate and sometimes that's just like a feeling about an aesthetic and so you know listeners at home don't worry if you're not like haha my thesis i've got it yeah you know oh yeah no kimi kabuki was you know the thesis was definitely um you know, right before we shot, like what Dark Knight of the Soul was me discovering that the right POV was the housewife. And I got through that. But then even after that, you know, bef- between then and production, like a lot of my classmates who would like give me critical feedback about the script didn't really get it or like had all these lofty other ideas of how it could be better or how it should be better. And so we went into production feeling like, is this good? We're getting a, we're getting mixed signals here, and um, but we still just like had to stick with our guns and make the best that we could. And um, there was a huge lesson making that thesis film was like you're not going to please everybody. Like you you really can't. And um, if sixty percent of the viewers get it and forty percent don't, to me that's a success. That's that's my ratio split. Um, yeah, yeah, I, especially in film school you're surrounded by people who are so smart and you admire and you're seeing things that they're so good at that you're, you know, jealous of. You're like, oh man, I wish I could shoot like that. That's so awesome. You know, all of those different things. But you're conflicted with that feeling of like, I think I know what I want. I think I know what I'm trying to say. And I can't tell if this smart person is going to help me or distract me. And it's not like they're your boss. It's not like you have to, it's not a studio note. So they could be doing real damage to your vision or you could be an obstinate jerk. You don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know. <laughs> yeah. You don't know. So you're always yeah. navigating with like blinders on and you're just trying to make the best like instinct decisions that you can the whole way. Something that I've learned, especially through like commercial filmmaking is, um, you know, it's a visual medium and sometimes the way you write it or pitch it to someone just is really hard to understand. And the only way you can sell your idea is by showing it to someone, you know, whether it's an animatic or visual or storyboards or, I mean, I've been in so many meetings where we show storyboards and people are like, oh, this is the first time I understand what you're talking about. You know, or the first time I see the script 
And a lot of times it's like, you know, I have to go shoot something on my iPhone and say like, this is how it is. And even after a shoot, like when an edit's not working, I'm like, can I play with the footage? Cause I know it can work. I just, it's really hard for me to articulate exactly like what frame to cut on and which shot to be on. I kind of need to feel it. Cause I know we captured it and just need to f- find how it goes together. And it's, I think there is like a, with screenwriting, there's this idea that like, well, if it's in the script that, you know, if it works at all, you can tell from the script. And if it doesn't work, you can't tell from the script, but so many times that's not the case. Yeah. So many things you realize after doing it over and over again is, um, you know, like execution contingent of like, is this going to work or not? Like something that works amazingly in a script might be totally terrible because of how you executed it, or it could be incredible. And so that's a part of the excitement, right? Is that like, you don't know if it's going to work or not. And it's also part of the terror. Yeah. I do think honestly, one of my skills and I'm sure your skills as well. And, and the more you direct things is the more instantly you can recognize that. Yes, this is super funny on paper, but it will not work on screen or it will take four shots to make this one joke that you say like so-and-so is implying this, but really meaning this. And you're like, well, how do I show that? That's going to take five beats. And like, how can we change that? Which I think a lot of producers and writers and and other people in the mix don't don't think about the script to screen in the same way that a director does, you know? Yeah, I completely agree. I, I think that is definitely a skill that I've developed now where, um, you know, I, if I'm working with a writer, it's like become my job to communicate like this intention of yours is good, but will not be able to be executable in the way you see it when it actually becomes real life and real people and, you know, something actually in front of you. Do, do you find, Yoko, that as you start working on more network shows, that that problem gets a little less uh, prominent? I guess I've, I'm always hoping that like one of these days I'm going to sit down with some writers who know exactly what the fuck they're doing. And I'm not going to, we're, we're going to get past that one hump and onto even harder, bigger challenges. Yeah. I mean, it depends really. Uh, like, I mean, the two shows that I've done have been such different experiences. One, um, like the script has, was completely locked the entire time and it was, you know, and it was reliable in that way and I could prep it and it wouldn't change. And the second experience I had was that it was actually very fluid. The writing was fluid, but they were like very collaborative about it. Um, and so both changing scenarios the font on the script. Yes. Changing that to uh, the bold. Yes. No, it was just like, and, and it there was more of a fluidity to the script in collaboration with the actors and like kind of what they saw the scene was going towards. And um, so, you know, there's no simple answer of like, once you start to get to these professional levels, like it changes because every writer is so different and every show is so different and the culture of it. So far, I've had great experiences only, you know, and so I've been very lucky. Of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I guess I'm always just like, well, most showrunners have directed a lot. And so, you know, if every if they are the filter, then everything goes through them. Whereas like most other circumstances, you know, to no one's discredit, writers often haven't directed. And so like sometimes our experience is the thing that kind of helps them realize like, oh, this is the thing that we do have to rewrite this a a tiny bit or whatever. Like you were saying, the intention is right, but it won't be executed the way you want it to be. But like with experience, the way oftentimes showrunners have, hopefully that gets filtered out a tiny bit more. We'll we'll see. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I think it absolutely does. I mean, the showrunners that also direct absolutely. Yes. Can um, and, know what again, they want. 
it's their experience level too, right? Like I think you do more and more episodes, like when you're in season five of your show, like things tighten up in a certain way. Also in TV, people say what they think a lot, <laughs> which makes uh, it easier. Like I, whenever you I mean, work you with mean TV characters writers, express their intentions or you mean crew members are frank with one another? No, characters talk a lot about what they're doing. And I mean, you know, we we're talking about law and order earlier. It's like, that's like, and I know you're not directing Law and Order, but especially in those procedural things, that, like the way they get from point A to point B, a lot of times the character saying like, hey, we looked that up. Looks like this is the next place we need to go to, you know? And I mean, no, that's a bad example. And obviously there's like really good, good writing. But I find that like t- in TV, you err on the like side where things should be clear and things should track and, and people should understand why a character does this and this and this. And it's not often going to rely on like, one visual or one like performance quirk like there's like in tv it's like you're reinforcing the clarity of the scene in like multiple ways nothing spells that out more than if you watch a network show on a streaming service where there are no longer commercial breaks because you will feel the act break and then in the next scene very succinctly the characters will just kind of quickly restate their circumstances and objectives probably with a little joke or something but just like in a, you know a four a quarter of a page probably just get it out and then they're they're back on but it's just like remember reader you were thinking about buying a Toyota or some Snickers but now we're we're back in the in the story but like you don't need that when you're when you don't have ad breaks basically um, yeah it always makes me laugh it does definitely feel like um, TV for streamers and TV for anything with commercials uh, has a different pacing to it and. You hope that you adapt depending on where you kind of know it's going to be shown primarily. Yeah. I, I'm curious, Yoko, what was your first paid gig after AFI as a director? Uh, my first paid gig after AFI was as a director was a lifetime web series called uh, Fall Into Me. I had just got... Yeah, Wait, yeah. Who produced that? Like, who was the line producer or like... I'm trying um, to think of... Produced by Andrea Andrea. Edgerman. Carrie Legrand, Jamie Mayers, Saget Meyer, Schwartz, Guy Shalem, who I think I know that guy, Mark Koberg, David McKillop, Howard Owens, and Tina Puglies. Huh. Puglies? None of those people. I've, I've heard of that show for sure. I feel like in my Facebook feed, I feel like people have been like, check out our show. But yes. I, yeah. Yeah. There I was, I think, it. like six of us directing different like storylines. So I'm sure you probably know somebody within all of that. But that was my first gig, which was cool. Like, you know, it was low budge, but, you know, graduating grad school and getting a gig pretty quickly was fun. Um, It was like 50 pages. And how did you get that? So my thesis film at AFI, they do something called a showcase. When I went there, it was very um, kind of unfair in the sense that only three got to like showcase. Only three of the thesis films got to actually play at these things. But like everybody, each, each project had like a little like you know, like a tabletop that had their project and like they get like agents and managers to come and like mingle with you and talk. Um, And I happened to talk to the manager of one of my writer friends who had a film in the showcase, I think. And so we got chatting and he liked my film. So I got a manager and he got me the lifetime project. He just like sent you the script and then you read it and you went and pitched on it. I don't think it was even like that. I don't think there was even a script that that project was very loosey goosey and like strange. Um, the, the whole process, you know, it, it was the whole production office was out out of one of the producers' um, house, and 
yeah, I think I, I just got like a, I was interning at a school at a commercial com um, production company. And then like, I got a call from a manager being like, Hey, talk to this writer. Like they have this lifetime thing and they have one more slot left. And it was very informal and quick. And like, I went to the house that was their like production office and, um, they liked me and I it seemed competent. So they hired me on to do two different, uh, storylines. That's cool. And then did that lead to your next paid gig? I don't think that led to my next pay gig. No, I think that was like a good, like it was, we did like 50 pages in five days. So it, it showed me what I was capable of. And I was like, okay, I guess I could do TV um, someday, but that was like 2016 or something. And um, I did not get like a, a narrative directing gig for a while after that. I, I actually worked as a freelancer for super deluxe and that was kind of my paycheck for a while. Oh, as a freelance producer or like a director, um, but as a director, you're also doing, you know, camera and editing. So you're pretty much a creator. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, cool. Did you, you must have known Winnie Kemp over there then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah I did. she's great. Yeah. Yep. I did three shows for Super Deluxe. You did? Oh, which yeah. ones? I did. The first one was called, I mean, none of them were like super popular. The, there's but... two different generations of Super Deluxe. Oh, yeah. I might have been generation one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were you doing the more narrative stuff before like the more content-y things came up? Yeah, like when um, Derek and Simon, do you know Derek Waters and Simon? Yeah, I know oh, Derek. They, uh, they had a show on there called Derek and Simon. And then there was Maria Bamford had a show on there. It was kind of, I think it was Super Deluxe 1.0. Yeah, so mine, I did three narrative shows. One was called I Hate My Roommates, this girl that murders her roommates um, for entertainment. Then I did one that was... Uh, called bad ad which was like about these advertising executives that it was like a hybrid show we it was like hidden camera kind of and we would show people like offensive ads and see how long they would stay at these focus groups before they would like leave that's amazing yes that's the og super deluxe that's fun but yeah so super deluxe 2.0 is totally different I guess. yes i was in 2.0 right after i graduated like they were just like trying to nap up all the you know earlier emerging filmmakers to like make stuff for them so yeah, I, I definitely knew Winnie. Um, she was doing more of... Uh, I, I had developed a script with her, I think. But then, like, the entirety of Super Deluxe was like, yeah, we're not going to really do scripted, scripted stuff anymore. Um, and just really lean into the YouTube stuff. Cool. Well, so I see, like, on your website that you did the Ryan Murphy... You were a Ryan Murphy Half Foundation Fellow, Warner Brothers Directing Workshop, Women in Film, Sundance Institute, like, Fox Global Directing Initiative. Did all that stuff introduce you to the right people to get tv work yeah i think my first program the fox diversity program was um 2017 i believe and so you know it was like two years between graduating school and even getting into my first diversity program i had been you know applying to them for a really long time before i even got in and uh and yeah that first one is so funny um but yeah, it, it, once you get into one of the like TV directing diversity programs, that kind of does open the door for you to be able to get into the next one and the next one. And so that eventually definitely did lead to probably where I am today. But at that time, you know, it doesn't lead to anything directly. You know, I didn't get hired for anything off of the Fox directing program, it, but it, you know, trickled down eventually to lead to somewhere. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. I, I feel like that's actually a pretty common story that we've heard is that there's a lot of people that are like, yeah, I I did all of them. And then on my very last one, I was about to give up and I finally got my first episode of something. Though I think that they're maybe getting a little bit more proactive now about like saying, hey, we're going to give you an episode of 
of a show basically like some some of them i feel like maybe nbc has one i don't want to speak out of turn because i'm not super familiar but i think they're trying to make that a little bit more of a direct correlation yes um there's two programs that usually guarantee that if you get into this program you will be directing one of our shows and that is nbc and warner brothers i did the warner brothers last during covid i did the covid warner brothers workshop which was all online um, and they did a fabulous job of actually still making it a very educational program. Um, they could not guarantee us episodes during the COVID year, um, so that's unfortunate. But they they have a reputation of being one of the best because because they usually do that. And how how do you get in? Like, what do they judge you on? Um, it's an open application. Uh, they judge you on your work sample. You have to sh- submit a narrative film. Every d- program has different qualifications, but I think Warner Brothers specifically is like you need to submit a film that either that played in one of these festivals. Um, they have an actual list that has to be like ticked off. And um, you then submit like also, of course, like an essay. It, again, depending on the program, it could be anything of like, you know, what do you, what is your unique perspective and your background? You know, how will that contribute to TV directing? Or like, why do you want to direct for TV specifically? So stuff like that. And having directed Good Trouble and a Quibi show didn't disqualify you from acceptance? So uh, no, I did the 2020 um, Warner Brothers workshop two months before, honestly, a month before I got the call for Good Trouble. So Quibi did not disqualify me because it was not a TV show. But uh, I, it was, yeah, Warner Brothers happened right before I got Good Trouble. Cool. So what's, what's next? Are you now getting like TV offers left and right? I, you know, I have actually a lot of attachments for features that I'm hoping will actually pop and actually get going. And yeah, I'm, I've continued to do, take a lot of meetings for TV. Now that my episode's out, my reps are definitely hustling that to people and trying to get my next thing. So I have a lot of meetings. Um, but yeah, I, I'm still very passionate about telling stories that I'm, you know, that I initiate and telling stories um, in feature format. So definitely hustling TV episodics. But yeah, I have a lot of different, different things going on. And for the features, is that stuff that you wrote or things that you like your reps found for you? Or how do you attach yourself to a feature? I have several features I'm attached to. And yeah, I think it's um predominantly my reps have kind of like match matched me with writers um, who've had scripts and they kind of packaged me that way with them. And um, we developed the script together a little bit more further from where they did it. And, you know, I make like a lookbook and then they kind of go out to producers and stuff. I have a few of those, but I also have a, an attachment to one that already had a producer and they were looking for a director and that came through my reps. But I've also, you know, written several on my own and with co-writers that were trying to get made. Um, through that route so every scenario all the ways yeah yes all all of them every hustle you can think of for sure yeah Yeah. i guess my kind of last question about that stuff is like so now that you've done good trouble you've done the bold type you've done your shorts and you do all these docs and on your website i mean you just have everything you have like Vimeo staff pick docs and music videos and i believe you you refer to yourself as genre fluid which i love that's so good Yes, I to this day I think I actually coined it because I haven't heard other people use it yet. So, it's so good. I think, uh, it's so good. It's like such a be good mine. because I think that sometimes you know people want to be like, well, yeah, I do a lot of different things, and Holly wants to, wants to be like, no, no, put yourself in a box. But like that phrase in particular, I think it, people get it. It like it feels like young and new and now. You know what I mean? It's cool. It's good. It's really well, good. What it, what is your favorite thing? Like, what's your what genre do you want to work in? 
or that you're most excited about today? Yeah. So I say I'm genre fluid because I, I do love, um, you know, narrative expression in all kinds of mediums and genres. But, you know, like my my origin like they, that I love is like kind of the dramedy space with, you know, about porn stars and, you know, regular people having dramas in their lives. But now at this point in my career, I love putting those, you know, human dramas that I care a lot about and putting that in like a horror space or like an elevated space, right? So 50 States of Fright really came out of nowhere for me. Like I wasn't expecting to do horror. I wasn't seeking horror specifically, but um, I always knew I wanted to tell stories that were, you know, more edgier and um, had that, had had like a level of elevation to the narrative. And uh, when that came to me and I did it, I kind of fell in love with the genre. And now pretty much most things that I'm attached to is in the horror space. Um, but it's always going to have like the heart um, that I care about, which is again, like, right. but it's going to be pulled out of somebody's chest. <laughs> yes, exactly. Hey, literally. There you go. Well, and uh, you know, also I think that's a really good space to be in, especially for a first feature, right? Like I feel like there's a lot of opportunity there. So it's nice to on a careerist level to think about it that way. Yeah. I think there's a lot of examples of people who made a name in horror as a jumping, you know, as a way to start off. And um, yeah. And now I sincerely just enjoy it. Like I, being able to like make the special effects of like this giant ball and like having all the goop and like having all the action sequences and choreography. Like I just love the craft of all that too. So I yeah, really like I, it. I think Jeremy Saulnier calls it the arts and crafts of filmmaking. And I've always really loved that. Like, yeah, it's like neat to like make something out of plaster that looks like a dead body or whatever, you know, it's that's just really fun. fun. Like that's the movie, that's movie magic. Right. And that's kind of how, what we all fell, fell in love with it in the first place. And, um, so yeah, like there's a lot of topics like, you know, very relevant topic, like social justice things that I love that's discussed in shows like Good Trouble and The Bold Type. And I love to put that into more like fantastical worlds and elevate it. And that's Couldn't what I want to do. one of them be a vampire though? Yeah. I mean, who knows? Yeah, yeah. it's always possible. <laughs> Yoko, that's awesome. If people want to like find out what you're doing next, is like, like, do you post it on your website or what's, what's the best way for people to like kind of keep track of? what you're doing yeah um i am pretty active on instagram my name is for yoko f-o-u-r-y-o-k-o as a reference to the greatest beverage that's ever been created in uh, yeah, human not history bad. not bad <laughs> thank you um and i actually recently have been del i've been like dabbling in the tiktok world um where i specifically try to make videos where i like give advice to people who want to be filmmakers oh so, awesome yeah well uh, definitely shout that out at director yoko so you can find me there cool are people receptive to it yeah you know i was just like when i was quarantining in montreal for two weeks and nothing to do i was like you know what i'm just gonna give it a shot and my niche can be you know a filmmaker and so i was kind of casually making it over a while but like the last few days i made one that kind of like you know uh so I had gone back to have work at Kazunori like last um, January 2020 because I was just like, even I had, you know, I had just done the Quibi show, but I still wasn't quite making ends meet. So I went back to the service industry. You need money. Yeah. I need money. And so, you know, I, I kind of told the story of like, you know, in a TikTok where I was at a sushi restaurant at the beginning of the year and by the end of the year, I was directing television. And, you know, told that, told that little thing in a 60 second thing. And um, that kind of blew up. And I'm surprising, like, we got to have a, a lot of followers now. So Awesome. 
Awesome. Yeah. Well, cool. what's a lot of followers on TikTok? I mean, in TikTok world, it's not a lot. It's a lot for me. It's like over two, like over a week, I got like thirteen thousand followers, and I'm like, what? Yeah, that's not bad. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty I think great. TikTok world, that's pretty small. Sure. Get, yeah, like, you're not an influencer. You're, you're, no brands are hitting you up just yet, for sure. But but yeah, that's someone still a lot. actually offered me some free like hair stuff because they like my hair. Oh, so. okay. Well, I, mean, I stay corrected. It. There you yeah. go. I hope that uh, yeah. when they revise for Loco, when they bring it back, I, I hope you get hit up as well. Have you ever had one? I feel oh, like yeah. for Loco, really? Yeah, I, I've never tried one. I think they were gone oh. by the time I was aware of them. I was in college at the height ah, of Four Locos, so yeah, yeah. I was the target audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I feel like we should steal your video title for this episode title, which is your your video that blew up on TikTok. Success is not linear. Very mm, true. Yeah. Pretty that great. Is my, that is my name. That is the title. That's you. You own that. I do. Non-linearity. There you go. Yes. Well, Line- linear fluid career yeah all, all mishy mashy and wishy-washy something like that well yoko we can't wait to learn more about uh your all of your insight on tiktok uh but before you get back to tiktoking do you have a second to hang out and endorse with us i yeah i would love to endorse with you unpaid endorsements my unpaid endorsement is the comedian um fortune feemster has a new netflix special sweet and salty it's our new stand-up special um and i've always loved fortune feemster i feel like she kind of came out of the gate with just like such a clear voice and like point of view and comedic style that always clicked for me i've always loved it but this special i feel like she's just at the height of her powers like it's so funny it's so relatable it's still quite like broad too you know what i mean i feel like everybody can laugh at this this special but it's still literally only fortune feemster can do that material so uh i thought it's nice to check out a a stand-up special every once in a while and it's on netflix they're doing great work uh nate bergazzi had a great special as well so uh stand-up is back maybe thanks to netflix i don't know i miss it so uh it was really great so uh fortune's feemster sweet and salty i love what i love about like those stand-up specials is you can you you know obviously you want to watch them but you can also just kind of have them playing while you're working on something else Oftentimes, you know washing the dishes I, or doing things Netflix I think they used to definitely do this I don't know if they still do but they would put them out as records as well that you could just stream on Spotify Oh yeah, yeah. Netflix did that Yeah yeah I would you guys before I started working at Comedy Central I was I like had a very extensive like CD collection of like specials <laughs> I had like, like record stores would be going out of business. And so I'd be like, all right, Virgin Megastore, where's your comedy section? And just swoop all of them up. So like I have a a strong affinity for for specials in particular. That's kind of how I got my job at Comedy Central was just having that back catalog. So you're the guy that at the party. Yeah. Take the record out. I'd be like. Instead of it being like Miles sure. Davis, it's like. A, You're really, that guy. Jerry Seinfeld. Oh, cool. Uh, Dr. Demento record. Um, I do have like first edition, <laughs> like John Mulaney records before he was famous for sure. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. Anyway. That's anyway. a fan. Yoko, what you got? Okay. So my unpaid endorsement is this like very small, like micro grant, like resource that's called Squid Tropica. Um, they're created by two artists. One's a muralist called Squid Liquor. Her, you know, name is Lauren. Uh, their name is Lauren. 
uh, and a pop musician named Polar Tropica. And they give like support um, LGBTQ and like BIPOC artists by giving them micro grants um, to support their art. And they're predominantly like an Instagram, you know, account, but, you know, people can submit and people can donate money to support artists. And um, yeah, if you're like struggling artists who just needs a little bit of like cash flow to help out, they can receive applications and then like give those out. So yeah, I love that. What constitutes a micro grant? Like how much cash are we talking about here? Is it like 50 bucks? Is it 2000 bucks? Like I what's think a... it's like a couple hundred. Like I think 200 is like the world or 100 is the world. Um, I think that's what you call a micro grant. That's cool. Did you guys hear in San Francisco, they are like choosing like 30 or 80 or 100 artists like in the city and giving them either a thousand or two thousand dollars a month to just do their art. It's kind of like a pandemic grant, but they're like, you know, during COVID, we're worried that people are going to be stressed, you know, and not making as much art. So we want to support those artists. Yeah, I think one, you know, silver lining of COVID has been like these artist supporting programs. Like, again, Squid Tropica was kind of born out of trying to help LGBTQ BIPOC artists who are struggling right now. But I also, um, I was a recipient of a Vimeo small business like grant that was at the very beginning of the um, pandemic. They gave me and a business money for me to make a documentary about uh, about them. That's awesome. Yeah. Where, yeah. where can, is that available? Can viewers check that out? Yes. Or listeners um, check that out? I made a documentary with the Vimeo grant about a tattoo artist, a tattoo shop in Highland Park that, of course, you know, with the COVID restrictions was not able to work. And so I made a documentary called Permanent Healing, and that's on Vimeo. Awesome. Is that part of Stories in Place? Yes, Stories in Place. That was their series. Um, yeah. And I, I will I will always give an unpaid endorsement to Vimeo. I think, you know, they've always been around for us. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah, yeah. Or like 99 yeah. bucks a year, actually. Yeah. That, yeah. that kind of around. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, awesome. Did you have another endorsement? I do. Uh, these are like, Go you know, it. again, you it's don't okay. have to yeah. use all of these. No, but no, it's perfect. That's great. I was just like looking around of like, you know, I think what's important, especially right now for all of us artists is like find small joys in our life. And I was like, what has brought me small joys in my life? And that is um, Mickey Hargerty's in uh, Los Angeles is the my favorite plant store. Um, where I got all my beautiful plants um, and I'm obsessed with plants and I have many, many in my apartment. And uh, yeah, they get a neon pothos from Mickey Hargerty's in Hollywood. And I think you'll be very happy. Wait, a neon pothos? That's a type of plant? Neon pothos is my favorite plant. It's the one hanging right there. People can't see, but you can. It's the bright, it's a bright green plant that's very hard to kill. So I yeah, recommend yeah. that plant to everybody. Awesome. Well, cool. Uh, I'm going to endorse something I haven't watched yet. Can I do that? I, on on occasion, I endorse things that I'm about to. Try you have to circle back to if you hate it, though. I do, I will, and I did that with the bug assault gun, uh, assault shooter to get rid of flies that uh, destroyed my house and my marriage. Um, so I have not watched this yet, but I'm gonna watch it maybe tonight. Have you guys heard of this documentary about Jackie Chan called My Stunts? So I heard about it from the VFX or Stunt People React. It's like. Uh, on the Corridor Digital channel on YouTube, Corridor 2 or whatever their like, behind-the-scenes channel is, they have stunt people react to stunt scenes in movies. And they, they were saying that this documentary, Jackie Chan, My Stunts, is like a must-watch for everyone. And you can watch the whole movie for free on YouTube. And he basically like, goes into a scene and explains how he comes up with like, what the stunts are in a scene and 
it just it tells people like anyone can do it if they like practice enough and stuff so i'm very excited to watch it because that stunt choreography is like we watch it and it's like looks like magic to us but it's so fun to think that jackie chan is going to like deconstruct it and take us through his process like a master class that sounds amazing i'm endorsing that too i'm so i want i'm i'm gonna watch that tonight that sounds incredible <laughs> it's it, it, look so, at matt's face okay. he's like this whole segment is falling no i love it endorsing so things they don't even I know love it. here so uh i have seen some of it and i will say that also on top of what you just described Oren, it's very clearly like a solid like 90s dvd direct to dvd sort of or rather probably actually like was made and then imported and so it's got like a lot of like cheesy ass graphics and like like really like synthy music and stuff like the the most 90s jackie chan you can imagine which is like a version of jackie that i love very dearly so you get that extra layer of like cheese on top of a lot of great content so get ready get ready it's oh yeah, it's almost wait. like you know uh like a snapchat filter level of like <laughs> of intro sequencing. yeah yeah it's like pretty crazy so uh so yeah yeah I'm even i think more that's excited a, that's a triple endorsement i think for jackie chan my stunts yeah yeah or maybe yoko and my endorsement are like one or half each co co so it's like two, two endorsements yes yeah well if you at home or on your commute to your living room or wherever you work from nowadays um, have any thoughts about what we talked about uh, want to share your your endorsements or your questions uh, for Yoko we can pass them on to her you can email us at justshootitpod at gmail.com uh, you can also find us on all social media at justshootitpod I'm on Instagram at Kaplan and on Twitter at SmiteyPileg. And I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow. This episode was edited by Sarah Weirda. Our social media maestro is Derek Aiello and additional consulting producing from Ali Kornfeld. Check us out at JustShootAPod.com. Oh, and uh, the music you're listening to is provided by the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.